Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice podcast about memoirs and memoir writing. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Elisa Harrod, the author of Coming to My Senses, a story of perfume, pleasure, and an unlikely bride, published by Viking. And welcome, Elisa. Well, thank you. So tell me a little bit about how your memoir got started uh, in terms of what sort of led you to to writing this book? Well, I didn't intend to write a memoir at all, and it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that. Uh, What I wanted to do, I was this obsessed fangirl. I was reading these perfume blogs, and I was in love with the writers of the perfume blogs, and I just couldn't believe that these women were doing this amazing writing, basically for free, for the joy of it, and reading them, and uh, falling in love with perfume had changed my life. So I was trying to create an anthology of all my favorite posts that would be a kind of guide into that world. And that project did not work out for various reasons. But in the process of putting it together, I got an agent and I met some editors. And um, I lost, a lot of people dropped out of that project. So I ended up writing a lot of the proposal myself. So the editors saw my writing, and they were very encouraging about my writing, even though they didn't want the project. So we tried again with a memoir, and uh, and that's that's what happened. So let's backtrack a little bit and get to the point where you became a fangirl of perfume <laughs> blogs, because as I understand it, this is not what people would have expected of you. No, I didn't expect it of myself, and I was kind of sneaking around on myself for a long time. I didn't tell anyone in my little academic activist granola girl world that I was uh, ordering perfume samples and putting them on all day. I was freelancing at the time, so I had a lot of time alone, and um, it was ideal for sort of having a secret life. It took me a long time even to just sort of admit to myself that that's what I was doing. It took me almost three months to order my first batch of samples. Because I perfume, I thought, was for ladies who knew how to do all those grooming things I don't really know how to do. Blow dry their hair properly, wear heels without getting blisters, <laughs> sort of make themselves look put together in a way that I just don't think I'll quite ever figure out. But it turned out that I was wrong. What was it that attracted you to to the writing there when you first discovered it. Oh, God, they were describing smells. And I just didn't think you could do that. It had never occurred to me that you could describe a smell in detail and at length. Um, and it didn't hadn't really occurred to me that that's what perfume was, that perfume was the art form that humans had invented to play with smells and that people were telling stories with perfumes, and they were referencing history, and they were creating fantasies of different people and places. All of that was brand new to me. Very similar to wine writing or food writing, but it was was this art form that I had just never stumbled across, and so it had all that thrill of having, you know, discovering some underground thing that no one seems to be talking about. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that you write about in the book is, as you were getting into um, perfume writing, is this idea that we don't really have a unique vocabulary to talk about perfume and the way that it smells. You know, the words that we use to describe this, we have to 
draw upon from from other metaphors. Yeah, we're constantly、um, colonizing the language we have for the other senses to describe smell. So we say things are bright or dark. We say things are soft or they're velvety. We say things are scratchy, they're salty, they're sweet. You know all this all this language that comes from taste and touch and sight,、um, but I also think that we have a private internal vocabulary for smell. So we have our memories. We have all of these moments in our lives when the place that we are, or the food that we make, or the person that we know becomes attached to a certain kind of smell. And what happens when you start to explore smell is that all those memories come rushing up to the surface because you finally have a language、uh, for recognizing them and for attaching them to something besides just that specific moment in time. And it, it can be this amazingly、uh, emotional experience for people. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned wine writing earlier. You know, a while back I was talking with a、uh, a wine expert and philosopher about. You know the language of, of wine criticism and, and and memory in particular, and it was interesting that our memories seem largely based in terms of our ability to communicate our memories to other people, primarily audio visual.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we remember things that we saw.、Uh, we might be able to remember things that we heard and be able to talk about those in in, in words to other people. It's harder to articulate. An olfactory memory or a taste memory、hmm. to be able to sort of like pick that out of、um, out of the blue and, and remember it in a way that like a fragment of song might pop into our heads or, or yeah, that's interesting.、Heads. I think most of the time we have to come across the smell or the taste itself. So you have that moment, the most famous moment of all in Proust, where he drinks the. Lime tea dunks his madeleine into the lime tea, and the smell of the tea and the taste of the cookie bring back the entire story that follows. Right,、mm-hmm. but I think that part of what happens when you start to develop a smell vocabulary is that you are able to have these building blocks that surround those memories, and it becomes starts to become much easier to describe what's in your past. It makes you a more whole person, I think, to be able to do that. Just in the same way that being able to tell any of our other stories does. Now, you mentioned that you come from an academic background, and you talk about in in the book about how, as you were sort of developing this passion for for perfume and for scent, this was not something that was very easy to convey. To your circle. <laughs> well, it was actually easier than I thought it was going to be. I think most of the fear was mine. I mean, I had spent a long time being very passionate about my academic work, and then I, like many of my colleagues, I had failed to get a job, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to become next. So I was still kind of clinging to that identity, and I was. A little afraid of this new, you know, beauty world <laughs> that didn't seem to have anything to do with that identity. So I was afraid to tell my friends about it because of that, but also mostly because it was making me so happy. And I think when you are really 
being made happy by someone or something, you wait a little while to introduce that that person or that thing to your friends, right? Because you don't want someone to say something disparaging about it and and ruin it for you and make you feel like you have to give it up. So it's just this very tender thing that was happening, and I was protective. When I finally did start confessing to my friends, some of them turned out to have whole perfume lives of their own and really, really surprised me and told me some fantastic stories. And some, some of them, many of them, turned out to have much better noses than I did. So part of the reason they hadn't gotten into perfume is that for them, walking through a department store is just an assault. And they had never had a chance to smell things slowly or smell them in isolation. Once I tried to seduce them <laughs> with my little vials, then th- things got better very quickly. On the flip side, you mentioned how your then fiance and now husband, and that's a story we'll get to later on in the podcast. <laughs> but at the time, like, you know, his reaction was, you know, he basically had two reactions. Yeah. Either something smelled like cinnamon or it smelled like something. Right. It smelled like vanilla. And that was good, or it smelled like powder, and that was bad. <laughs> now he's great, actually. He, I, I sprayed this perfume on the other day, and he said, it smells like tea, but jasmine tea, and I also smell some citrus, which are were all the exact notes in the perfume. So he, he's become completely converted, and he actually has a little arsenal of scents that he wears himself now, just every now and then. I guess it might be a little extreme to say that in the course of of becoming interested in perfume that you rediscovered your femininity, but perhaps it's fair to say that you rediscovered aspects of your femininity. I I think that's pretty fair to say. I probably had other ways that I was expressing it, but that particular kind of femininity, for sure, this kind of femininity that I associated with oh, all these things that I have always secretly loved but haven't really known how to make a part of my life, you know, feather boas and glitter and high heels and really big hair and wigs and extravagant makeup, just the this whole sort of theatrical, over-the-top world. I've always loved that world, but I haven't known how to have part of that world in my everyday life. That was much harder for me. And also there were some aspects of, I guess, kind of like the psychology that you associated internally or and emotionally with, with sense reached back to what were often some, some painful issues for you in, re- in terms of relationships with other women, well, with other girls, because yeah. this is back in school days. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I think I am like many smart girls in that I... I don't know if this is still happening. I hope it's not, but I sort of feel like it probably is. That there's a a moment in junior high when you have to make this choice about whether you're going to be a smart girl and uh, a girl who speaks up for herself and who loves books and or a girl who knows how to pretend not to be smart and to giggle and to dress a certain way and really spend more of your time trying to please boys. I really hope that's not true. I think for today's young girls, but I think it is something we all kind of struggle with just in general, how much of ourselves to compromise to please others 
And I think women struggle with it in particular. And I think we can sometimes be really cruel to each other, especially when we're 14. <laughs> I mean, 14-year-olds are just kind of cruel anyway. But it's, you know, it's the mean girl thing. I think we've all talked about it and seen it a lot. At the same time, a number of the things that you're writing about in Coming to My Senses, um, the discoveries that you're making about our relationships to scent are not always simply gendered. They're, they're gendered in a very complex sort of way, some of the relationships to scent that, uh, that you write about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thinking about you know, the way that your relationship with your friend Parker changes over time. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, that was a very interesting thing. So I, I can just say, I guess, mm-hmm. for people who haven't read the book, that my workout partner, the par- person that I was going to the gym with, May started to transition from female to male while we were working out and while I was doing, making these explorations of my own femininity and getting ready to be a bride. So we were kind of on these very uh, seemingly opposite tracks. For sure, I was moving towards this world where, you know, there was a lot of social approval for what I was doing. And for Parker... Um, he was getting sort of farther and farther away from the center of things. But one of the more fascinating things to me about perfume is that we think of it as this very feminine thing, and it's been treated as a very feminine thing. But there are, in fact, a lot of men in my perfume world, both gay and straight, and they wear all kinds of perfume. It doesn't really matter whether it's marketed to women or to men. Most of the time, the only thing gendered about a scent is the bottle. So it's kind of a great place to start playing with those expectations and to cross those lines in a small way. You know, Parker was crossing them in a big way. But the, And the perfume became, I think for us, one of those places where we were able to stay in touch and to have a meeting ground even while we were both in the middle of a lot of change. Let's circle back to uh, to you becoming a bride, which you know, we had sort of <laughs> foreshadowed that a little earlier in the questioning. And I mean, it's, it's a big theme of the book that your awakening into the world of perfume mm-hmm. is occurring simultaneously with this huge transformative change in in your life. Yeah. Well, it was kind of a transformative change that I didn't expect to be a transformative change. I think I was deep in denial about (laughs) what getting married would entail. I had been together with my husband for 10 years when we got engaged. So I already felt married. And I was 36 years old when all this began. So I didn't have, and also I had worked as a caterer for a long time uh, before college. So I had seen many, many weddings from the backstage and I had no romantic ideas about what it was like to have a wedding or how that might turn out in the end. I saw a lot of brides who, doomed brides get married. But I was very much on board with the idea of a wedding. We wanted to get married because we had reached a certain age where we realized our relationship wasn't just about the two of us. We were really the sum of this big network of people. 
And we had kind of been pretending just to be individuals all those years. So we wanted to have a gathering where everybody could come, you know, where the cousins from Mexico could come and my, my father's college roommate could come and our, our grade school friends could come. So we could, we could make that community manifest and we could turn to them and thank them for making it possible for us to come together. So I was, I was on board with that. But I forgot that I would have to star in that production. <laughs> and I was very naive about when my star turn would come. I think I thought I would just, you know, somehow manage to get a dress like a couple weeks before the wedding. My mother would plan the party. I would show up. We'd have this great party. And that would be it. But in fact, what happened is that the moment that we got engaged, everything revved up on both sides of the family. And also, I think just out in the world, getting married is such a powerful story. It's a kind of fairy tale that we all carry around with us. So anybody who found out I was a bride had stories to tell me, and they had things I, that they wanted me to be, ways that they wanted me to be. And I, I think if I were a real rebel, I probably would have found another way to do it. I have, um, in the book, I tell the story of my friend, who got married at City Hall here in New York. So I could have done that. But I actually did want to become a part of that tradition in some way. So I had a, a slightly more difficult task. The perfume really gave me a, a back door into that more traditional world, into, that, into all those girly rituals that I was really afraid of. It's interesting because I was actually about to ask whether you kind of saw the perfume as maybe sort of an escape valve. Oh, sure. Yeah. In the beginning, it was definitely an escape. So I, I was in denial and I was trying not to think too hard about a lot of things in my life. So I was spending a lot of time online, obsessively reading these perfume reviews and sniffing the backs of my hands to try to learn the different notes that I could smell. But then later, the places that you go to to become a bride, the places that you shop for fancy uh, foundation garments, the places that you shop for shoes, the places that you try on makeup, those are the same places where they sell perfume. And so perfume became a refuge for me in those places. It made it was something familiar. It made me feel like I had an inroad into that world. And then at the heart of the book, there is this chapter about uh, the, the bridal shower that my mother and her friends threw for me that was perfume-themed. And I think, you know, ultimately perfume gave me a way to imagine the lives of these women who were very different from me and who were older than I was. And it became a middle ground where we kind of told, told our stories to each other. It's funny you mentioned how, you know, the places where you were getting like the all the other bridal accoutrements is were the places where you get perfume. <laughs> I'm thinking of that one scene, you know, in your New York chapter, uh-huh. where you know you're running around New York trying to get from one perfume boutique to another to, to you, you want to absorb all these smells in your limited capacity mm-hmm. and this woman wants to give you a, a, a makeover and yes. you're like I don't have time for this I have to smell things <laughs> yes I love that uh, scene that is an actual true to life event 
And um, Inolde, who is an actual true-to-life person at Barney's, who everyone should go visit and buy lots of things from, because I couldn't afford to buy anything from her, um, is still there. Yeah, we we t- they set me up on the stool because I was very tired, and I said yes to Inolde. And while she put perfume on my face, she sent this extremely tall and gorgeous woman to fetch blotters, these strips of paper with the perfumes that I wanted to smell on them. This person looked like she should be ruling a small country instead of running errands for me. But um, And it turned into, we just became fifth graders. It was like we were at a slumber party. And we were giggling so loud that one of the other sales assistants shushed us. <laughs> So, I mean, even just that, even that I was able to go from being afraid to sit down on Inode's stool to having that experience with those ladies is really, you know, it's, like it's a small, it's a small piece of recovery of of my adolescence and my past, but it's an important one. The idea that you know they're they're coming and delivering you the, the blotters or the samplers <laughs> it, it, it underscores the fact that. There's that element of, of, of sampling, of just being able to get a taste of, oh, of that yeah. scent that is really important to the perfume community. And I'm wondering if there's like a, a legendary scent that you are still avidly tracking down. Oh, God, that is such a great question. I have gotten to smell some of the most famous and obscure things over the past few years just because I got to a point in my collecting where I was talking to other collectors who wanted things I had, and we were doing these sort of really high-level <laughs> swaps of very, very tiny amounts of, of rare things. I think that most of the things I'm dying to smell now are new things, things that kind of haven't quite crossed uh, the ocean yet from Europe, from small perfumers whose work I very much admire. There's a lady named Vera Kern, who's a Swiss perfumer. It took her 10 years to put out her first three perfumes, and she's just come out with a new one that's based on the scent of magnolia. Most people who try to make magnolia make something that I don't like at all because it's kind of watery and sweet. But her other perfumes are so amazing that I'm just dying to see what she's done with it. So it's just, you know, it's like a, I'm basically an art collector now. And so I have my I have favorite artists, and I can't wait to see what they do next. Do you think you have more writing uh, to do in, in this field or, or maybe even in other fields? Oh, gosh, I hope I have lots of more writing to do. Yeah. I mean, I was a writer for a long time before I became a perfume crazy. So this was just a door that I walked through to be able to write this kind of book and to be able to imagine an audience that would want to hear a story I had to tell. And that turned out to be really, really crucial for me as a writer. You know, I think before I had been working in this very earnest way to try as an activist or an academic and a writer to sort of mend the world in some way. And with this book, I just I just wanted people to have a good time when they read it. I wanted it to be a book that was about pleasure and that passed that pleasure on to other people. And that actually turns out to be a much better way to try to mend the world. <laughs> or, or at least I'm, I'm better at that version of it. Yeah. 
Great. Well, I definitely agree that people who pick up coming to my senses will have a good time oh, when they good. read it. This is Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I've been talking with Elisa Harrod. Again, the book is called Coming to My Senses, A Story of Perfume, Pleasure, and an Unlikely Bride. I hope you will join us again for another Life Stories podcast and another great story with uh, a memoir writer talking about her life and her writing. Thank you.